you in Jesus' name this morning. That passage is not one that makes us comfortable. It's one that brings an angst of the soul. It's one that should cause us to consider our place. It's one that should cause us to consider our walk. As I was uh, working through 1 Peter 4 last week, these two verses sort of stuck with me. And they didn't quite fit with the message last week, and so I thought it wise to consider them. Our text is 1 Peter 4, verses 17 to 18. And it considers judgment. An image of what we have just heard. And it considers not only judgment of unrepentant sinners, but judgment in the house of God. Judgment among the people of God. So this morning we'd like to consider what type of judgment is this? How, if we are to judge within the body of Christ, how does God judge within the body of Christ? And then a sobering reminder that both of these verses have about those who do not obey the gospel of Christ. Shall we read our text? Uh, re- starting in 1 Peter 4, uh, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Shall we pray? Father, this morning we consider your word. We consider these two verses. Father, may their truths be made plain to us. May we open our hearts and minds to hear what you would say. We pray this through Christ. We are told in our modern world that to judge anything by the truth of the Bible is probably one of the greatest offenses that you could bring upon a person. The God that modern man has constructed is one of permissiveness, one of individuality. We are told that to judge is to place our worldview as a measure of goodness and acceptability of a person's actions. When you express that a person's actions are sinful, the response is that You don't have the right to do that. Only God judges. 
If you knew the situation I was in, you wouldn't judge me. You wouldn't say that I'm right or wrong because you don't understand me. And that is the construct that our modern world gives us, that I as the individual alone am able to judge my situation. Probably the most known Bible verse among the modern world is no longer John 3.16, but Matthew 7.1, which says, Judge not, lest you be judged. Paul Washer says about this, People tell me, judge not, lest you be judged. I tell them, twist not Scripture, lest you be like Satan. And it would do us well to consider that verse. It does speak to us, uh, but it, its context does not uh, exclude any level of judgment. And we must keep in mind that to simply judge without acknowledging our own undoneness before God and without offering the hope of the gospel is to do a disservice of Christianity. We see some in our world who would make public display of judgment when we as Christians offer judgment alone without the hope of the gospel, I feel we misrepresent the gospel. But in many instances, we are called to judge. However, that judgment is normally to be within the household of God. The phrase here is that judgment begins in the household of God. And Peter is referring here to this passage in Ezekiel 9 that shows that God's judgment is first dealt to those who are of the house of God. If you consider Luke 19 and the parable of the talents, we see God or the master judging the servants and their faithfulness. And he first judges their faithfulness. We often don't see the little verse at the end where the master says about those who are outside of his house that they are simply to be done away with. The judgment to the man who did not invest his talent well was harsh, but not nearly as harsh as those who are outside of that master's house. So if this judgment is to first begin in the household of God, what type of judgment are we considering? The judgment we see here is different from the final judgment of the unrighteous. That judgment is eternal and final in its awfulness. And Peter uses that judgment to compare uh, or to contrast with the judgment we are considering here. The words we have in the scriptural text that denote judging are of three varieties. One, uh, a person who judges. Uh, second, the act of judging. And thirdly, the judgment rendered by God. And it's that word that we consider here. 
this judgment that begins in the household of God is a judgment that is rendered by God. The good news of this passage is in chapter 19 where we see that this judgment is brought about ultimately by the mercy of God. This judgment of suffering is to be endured under the knowledge of our loving and sovereign Lord. We could refer to this as the severe mercy of God that shapes us as He alone can shape. This mercy is similar to the discipline of a parent that are hard at the time of discipline. It yields the fruit of obedience. This judgment looks at our behavior. And this judgment reminds us of the holiness of God. Romans 2 speaks of this judgment examining our behavior. And I'll read uh, a number of verses from there. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This passage is clear that our reliance on Christ will be born in our behavior. Just because a person is able to pass judgment on what is right or wrong in other people's lives does nothing if his own actions are worthy of judgment. And so God will render this judgment of suffering, as we see in the context, according to our works. The warning that we see in Romans 2 and also in Matthew 7 and Luke 6 is a warning to those who are overly judgmental. And they are warned that they themselves are sinners saved by the grace of God. And that to be hasty in judgment of others often leads to an overlooking of the sin that is in our own hearts. One of the issues I think that we have with this in the household of God judging is that we tend to reduce it to a specific pattern. To live in obedience with God equals these certain actions. And we reduce that obedience to 
mere moral living. Modesty may mean dressing in a certain pattern. Avoiding worldliness means not going to certain places or doing certain things. Avoiding materialism means not buying expensive things. And in doing so, we have denied ourselves the ability to truly judge the heart of a man. If godly living consists only of following a moral pattern, then what is moral is described by external actions. And in doing so, we limit... Excuse me. One may for a time, or a person may for a time, be willing to change the actions with which they live. But the contents of the heart are hidden. In our hasty means of judgment, I believe we have forced people to hide the realities of their hearts and to present an image of piety and perfection when within the heart the battle against sin is raging. And the brotherhood, which is to be the squadron of fighters around you, is left outside for fear of judgment. We must cultivate a brotherhood that is aware of our individual struggles with sin and support that fight with prayer and accountability. But in doing so, we must never sacrifice the pursuit of holiness. We must pursue it like a band of brothers pursues a cause. We must pursue it in the close ties of relationship. We must as well be careful not to judge the sins of the flesh more highly than the sins of the heart. C.S. Lewis calls them animal sins and diabolical sins. And I quote him from Mere Christianity. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasure of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside of me. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. And the diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous person who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither. I think if we're not careful, we can judge what we see on the outside and not consider what is inside. We are to judge, though, with care and wisdom the lives of those in the brotherhood, especially as it comes to unrestrained and fully evident evil. 1 Corinthians 5 says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? I feel a clear distinction should be felt between a struggle with sin that is common to all man and a full pursuit of sinfulness. The former should be pursued with loving care 
and a spirit that recognized the likelihood of ourselves being in their place. The latter is to be grieved, but must be judged, and the unrepentant sinner is to be separated. The Apostle Peter makes that same separation in our text. God judges the sin in a Christian with suffering that brings about holiness, but he eternally judges the unrepentant sinner. This judgment also reveals our absolute destitute nature without the intervention of our Savior. As with the holy men that were marked in Ezekiel 9, we are in need of a mark or a seal to save us from the judgment of the unrighteous. We must recognize that we are fully dependent on the work of Christ on the cross as our only hope of salvation. Verse 18 states that the righteous is scarcely saved or is with much difficulty saved. The understanding is that the Christian is sanctified through much difficulty. The Christian walk is not one of ease and earthly pleasure. In fact, the hardest of our striving and the most dedicated of our worship will do little to remove our tendency to worship ourselves and the earth more than God. Only the supernatural work of Christ can deliver us to God righteous. But the work of refining is occurring in those God loves. And it often takes the form of suffering and hardship. This judgment also reveals the true nature of our holy God. In a lot of ways, we are fine with God being represented by Jesus. Jesus walked the earth and interacted with the brokenness of humanity in ways that made him approachable and quite nice. And I think if the Jesus of the New Testament were to be in our presence, we would feel accepted in his presence. We would feel at ease. But God the Father, the author of the flood, the holy God who dealt with Israel's sin in the judgment that we see, He is the God we fear. R.C. Sproul says about this God, Our fear is not the healthy fear that the Bible encourages us to have. Our fear is a servile fear, a fear born of dread. God is too great for us. He is too awesome. He makes difficult demands on us. In His presence, we quake and tremble. End of quote. God is holy, enough that He requires judgment of the people in His house. Being a child of God is not a free pass to then live however we want. Being a child of God acknowledges that God is the author of our life and has the right to shape and mold us into his image. This judgment is not simply punitive, but is meant to shape us. 
Malachi 3 points out that this judgment is like a refiner's fire that is meant to forge our character into his likeness. His holiness demands that we are holy. And the work of this judgment and suffering is to bring about holiness. As we consider our own hearts, as we consider our own tendencies towards sin, we must consider that these are unacceptable to a holy God. We must consider that He will bring about a judgment of suffering within the house of God that will bring about refinement. We must also then consider the judgment of the unrighteous in its full awfulness. Within the house of God, this judgment, as we say, takes on a refining characteristic. It is meant not for destruction. In the place of the unrighteous, it is meant for destruction. Jonathan Edwards says, They deserve to be cast into hell, so that divine justice never stands in the way. It makes no objection against God's using his power at any moment to destroy them. Yea, on the contrary, justice calls aloud for the infinite punishment of their sins. Divine justice says of the tree that brings forth such grapes of Sodom, cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? The sword of divine justice is every moment brandished over their head, and tis nothing but the hand of arbitrary mercy and God's will that holds it back. As Jesus was being led to the cross in Luke 26, he said of this day of judgment, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? The unrepentant man is in the hands of a holy God with no place to turn. The unrepentant sinner has no advocate before the Father. The sinner has no Savior. And Peter here warns us, if we as the house of God can expect a judgment of suffering, how much more awful will the judgment be for those who are unrepentant. This weight of eternity should weigh heavy on us. 
It should call us to make our faith sure. It should call us as a brotherhood to rally around each other. In the face of this judgment, though, we, as the children of God, have a Savior. We have Christ, who in His perfection took on our sin. In His holiness took on our sinfulness. And He bore them in our place. And we as His children can be saved from that awful wrath. As we consider this judgment, I pray that each of us would consider carefully our walk, would consider carefully our lives. We may and we do rest on the grace of God in the areas that we are weak. But may the knowledge of His judgment, and the knowledge of the eternal consequences weigh heavy on our hearts as we consider our lives and our actions. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we, without Christ, are undone. We recognize that without your mercy, that we are lost. Father, we are grateful for Christ. And as we seek to follow him, may we May we seek to be refined. May we seek to, as a brotherhood, walk away from our sinful tendencies. May we seek to build up each other in the gospel. Father, if your judgment does come on us in suffering, may we bear it. May we be refined by it. And in these, may we rest alone on your grace and on your goodness. We pray this through Christ.